Hello and welcome to episode 52 of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. For those of you who are listening for the first time, my name is Julian Carl and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group and I'm super passionate about all things leadership and management. So passionate in fact that I decided to start a podcast about it and here we are in season two. And my purpose for the podcast continues to be the same, to raise the standard of leadership. In today's show, I speak with Jen Jackson, who is the author of How to Speak Human, A Practical Guide to Getting the Best from the Humans You Work With. So Jen is the Managing Director of Jackson, who provide engagement, consulting and communication design to pioneering corporate leaders who want to change the future of work. As Jen puts it, she spends her days chatting, caffeinating and strategizing with co-conspirators, aka her clients, from around the world. Making her way from farm to city, Jen champions humans of all stripes. She has a unique ability to slice through layers of complexity, cut to the core of the matter and communicate with creative flair and dairy farmer simplicity. And I think all leaders out there would agree, communication is the key to your success. Now, during the course of the conversation, we explore Jen's book in detail. I start by asking Jen, why did she decide to write this book? And she shares how it came about through talking to her clients. She discovered that many leaders were frustrated with a lack of cut through with their personal communication. We take some time to discuss the importance of narratives and how important they are to effective communication. And towards the end of the interview, I asked Jen about the excuses for mediocrity and why there are no excuses for working towards being a better communicator. So keep listening, and as always, would really love to hear your thoughts about the interview with Jen Jackson, author of How to Speak Human. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian returns in 2019 with weekly conversations with leaders and authors from Australia and around the world, giving you the opportunity to share in their journey and learn from their expertise and knowledge. Julian also shares some of the tools and techniques he uses as a leader, mentor, and facilitator, helping you to build your leadership capability and improve your confidence as a leader. Well, welcome, Jen, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really happy that you've taken the time to be a part of it so that the listeners have a bit of a sense of uh, who you are. Who is Jen Jackson? (laughs) <laughs> Who is Jen Jackson? Um, well, do you want the, the long version or the short version? Because the long version could take us all the way back to being a dairy farmer's daughter, um, you know, way back in the day to having a career in music and theatre. Or the short version is um, that now I'm the founder and director of Jackson, which is an employee experience company uh, based on the Gold Coast, working with awesome clients all around the world. Okay. So, customer experience. Employee experience. Employee experience. What, what, what does that mean? <laughs> what is employee experience? Well, I, we feel like employee experience is this next evolution of um, focusing on engagement or culture. And when you think about uh, culture is the, the outcome of you know, all the different behaviours and beliefs and um, the way that we interact with each other at work and and. At the end of that, we, we feel like, oh, this is what the culture's like around here. Um, and engagement, if that's that constant you know, checking in and the measures of are we engaged, uh, experience is the, the really tangible thing that you can map out and you can look at employee life cycle, you can look at safety um, and actually go, these are all the touch points that make a difference to an employee's um, experience of work and we can do something about it. So to us, employee experience is the tangible to achieving the engagement and cultural outcomes that organisations are looking for. What types of clients are you traditionally uh, working with? It's quite diverse and no amount of analysis have I been able to go, oh, okay, that's pinpointing our very specific target audience when you talk about industry. So we're working with the likes of PepsiCo, um, Amazon, ProBuild, um, Mattel, Novartis, um, Closer to Home, Origin Energy. So usually it's, it's a large organisation that has, um, has a complex structure and, and a large number of employees that need communicating um, to and with. So, yeah, it's, it's quite diverse across industry, um, but I think what the similarity is between them is that there's a, a leader in that organisation who goes, 
we can do better and we can do things in a different way that really engage our people. Um, and, and I'm going to be the one to make that happen. So the conversation today is really going to be around uh, your latest book, uh, which, mm. which I'm holding in my hand called How to Speak Human, A Practical Guide to Getting the Best from the Humans You Work With. Why did you decide to, to write that? <laughs> um, well, why do we decide to write a book called How to Speak Human? Having worked with our fabulous clients, who I call collaborators, over the last 10, 12 years or so, there's been consistent conversations that, that keep popping up time and time again. So, uh, you know, how do I cut through? Um, our work environment is incredibly noisy. How do I get my messages heard? Or I seem to um, have somebody's attention but and, and we have a conversation and I feel like we're on the same page, we're speaking the same language, but then they turn around and they do the complete opposite of what we've just spoken about. So, yeah, time and time again, we kept on hearing that uh, leaders were frustrated that their communication wasn't getting through and we asked ourselves what's missing. Um, and that's why we came up with this whole concept around how to speak human, um, which then I guess leads into, you know, if we're, if we're not speaking human, then what, what are we speaking right now inside organisations? And um, for that, it was, you know, it's the busyness, it's the, um, we're speaking transactional, we're speaking um, in, um, in jargon or corporatese or technical speak uh, and it's the language that we use and the way we go about communicating that's not actually cutting through um, for a number of reasons and, uh, yeah, one of them also being that we, organisations might not have caught up to how we communicate, you know, day-to-day -day outside of work. So there is a uh, excerpt that I, I'd, I'd like to read because I think it sort of really reinforces what you just mentioned there. Somewhere along the way, amidst the busyness, the business, the technology and the professionalism became harder to connect with the people around us, harder to speak human, to get attention, to influence, to engage. The folk that have been thrust into leadership positions, connecting with people despite technical skills and the best intentions, like it requires a whole other language. So I would think that every organisation has some form of internal dialogue, whether that be driven by the leaders, a way of working, a way of speaking. Do you, or just general communicating, do you ask them to, to stop and take check of that before you start to, to work with them? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a part of the process is, is taking a look at well, what are we doing now and how are we talking about things now. Um, one of the, the chapters in the book delves into this whole idea of habituation and, um, you know, that when you're constantly seeing something or you're constantly exposed to something that you stop seeing it in in a way that, you know, you really take notice of. So, um, yeah, I think... It, especially within tight knit teams that you can um, be speaking in a way. And uh, I think everyone's probably been in that meeting where suddenly there's all of these acronyms that are thrown about. There's this jargon that everyone seems to be nodding along to and understands yet to maybe a new person in the group or um, other parties that have been invited. They've got no idea what's being talked about. So, um, but you just don't notice because you're just so indoctrined into this is, this is how we communicate around here. So much so that at Jackson, even we've we've created a a game called Jargon. Um, so yeah, Jar and then Gorn, and we even have a jar where you put the you know if suddenly I'll come back from a meeting and then I'll start saying something and then people will look at me and go, "What are you talking about?" And I'm like, "Damn, it's happened to me." So then I'll write it down on the piece of paper and then you put it in the put it in the jar, <laughs> and then at the end of the quarter, there's a champion of you know, jargon and then you have to buy everyone lunch. I like the sound of that, the lunch bit. <laughs> Always. So I want to start really uh, digging quite deep into the book because as I started mm -hmm. to uh, read it and, and, and go through it in detail, some, some, some key things really started to, to stand out for me. And the first thing I'd like to explore with you is, is this idea of uh, our focus areas. Are you able to share a little bit with the listeners about what these three focus areas are? Yeah, so, and this ties back in with 
those questions and, and the same conversations that we were having with clients again and again. How do we embed what we're doing? How do we cut through? Um, how do we how do we get our messages heard? How do we get people to care? Um, and really for us, it always comes back to these three focus areas. Have we got people's attention? When we do have their attention, how are we influencing and are our leaders and our managers able to influence effectively as well? And then finally, um, are we getting that deep engagement that we're looking for where, where people are putting in that discretionary effort and, and you know, really a part of, of the culture and finding that deep purpose in work? So attention, influence, engagement, um, three very key areas to having, having a great um, communication culture. And depending on where a company is at or, or what the project is, um, three different tactics or three different ways to go about solving a problem as well. Often we'll find, you know, depending on the, on the, on the leader, the person, the project, they'll, they'll come to us and say something like, oh, I need, I need a video because I need people to know about X, Y, Z. When you start scratching at the surface and you go, well, that's just going to add more noise. What the real problem might be is that your leaders aren't actually able to influence effectively and they need those human skills, um, human communication skills to be able to, to cascade those messages through. So when they're working together, that's your know, best case scenario. You're like getting attention, leaders are engaging and influencing, um, people are engaged and, and you've got yourself a very functional, happy, productive workforce. As, I, as I'm listening to you talk about those, those focus areas, I, I'm, I am intrigued a little in terms of what your experience has been with uh, how leaders respond when you talk to them about those three focus areas. Do they think they're, they're doing well? Do they think that they're uh, delivering everything they can be? Yeah, it depends. And um, so it, and it, on the environment as well. So if we're specifically coming in and talking about um, influence and an engagement, um, leaders' ability to influence and engage, then, yeah, we're, we're talking about the soft skills, um, which I don't like to call soft skills. I like to call power skills because they're so powerful. Um and that, that can be varied, like uh, depending on the organisation, they know that there's a big capability gap in that area. Um, other ones go, no, we're killing it. And then you've really got to work through the, <laughs> the different activities to you know, hold that mirror up and go, oh, yeah, wow, we suck. Um, yeah, when it comes to the attention equation and, and how well we can get people's attention um, through different mediums and messages, most of the companies that we're working with go, yeah, there's definitely a, an issue that we have around this. We don't do this well. Um, we, we know that we don't do it well, but often it's a, a the barrier is it's going to take too long to do it or um, we don't have the, the resourcing or the, the time to be able to do it really well, which I'll always challenge on and go, is there any point to sending your initiative out into the world if it's actually not going to get that return on investment because you haven't completed the task, which is now that you've built it, have you communicated it? And that has to be built into that overall project strategy from the start. So I really like the way the, the, the book is laid out because you start by letting everyone know that in the book, they're going to find 11 strategies which I think is a good number because it gives people some closure in terms of knowing there's a start and there's a finish. So I'm, in preparation, mm. I've probably uh, going to ask or want to explore pretty much all of them because I think they've all got some value. So I want to start <laughs> with the first one, which you call curiosity, the insatiable hunger of a curious mind. <laughs> Sounds very dramatic, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it yes, does. Yeah, curiosity, it, it seems like a natural place to start. Um, calling it a tactic feels too uh, transactional. It's, it's a great strategy, but it's also so much deeper than that. It's, it's so human. It's, it's a natural way that as humans we learn. And from the moment we're born, curiosity drives so many of our learning behaviours. 
it, it can prime us to learn. It can change the relationships that we have with people. Uh, one of my favorite quotes is you can't be angry and curious at the same time. It, it's very difficult to be, I'm very angry and interested in what you're saying. Um, it just doesn't work. <laughs> so for organizations and for, for leaders to embrace curiosity as, as a, you know, one of those fundamentals for how we operate around here sets great foundations for culture. One of the things that we do uh, inadvertently sometimes is so shut it down and it's really easy to shut down curiosity, uh, especially when we have a fear of failure or we're, we're scared that, you know, if you do something once and it didn't work out or you didn't get the reaction you wanted then and then you, you stop it from happening again, people around are learning that, oh, that's not acceptable, that's not tolerated, so let's not be curious, which is such a shame because this is where all of our fabulous ideas come from. As part of that, you actually, uh, well, I like the, the the relevance to drama because one of the, the, the lines you've got in here is that there's stone-cold killers with curiosity. <laughs> yes, indeed, which is it's really that fear factor, I think, um, as one of those key ones. Um, you know, punishing failure is a great way to crush future curiosity. So as a leader, encouraging curiosity if things fail and then it's more a science experiment um, where there's no such thing as, as failure. It's just disproven hypotheses. So <laughs> um, try again. And you also talk in, in, in the, as one of the stone cold killers is this idea of unrealistic expectations. And the reason I just want to explore that a little was one of the things which often comes up in the programs that we run is that the leaders we work with either, if they look up, they haven't had expectations set of them, or if they look downwards, they haven't really set expectations as clearly as they could. So what was your experience been in that respect? Yeah, and that leads into the next chapter as well um, around anticipation, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Um, for us with the unrealistic expectations, it's um, say there is a, you're using curiosity to get people interested in, in something that's coming up. Maybe it is a training program that um, if you <laughs> are driving that curiosity and then the actual experience doesn't match the hype that, has been built up around it, that's going to shut curiosity down again. Um, so if you try and do that the next time, you'll be like, no, nah, not interested. And you, you did just reference the idea of anticipation, but I'm, I'm really enjoying these sort of taglines you're putting on each of these strategies. So I'm going to share this one, the exquisite agony of anticipation. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think the, the very obvious way to talk about anticipation is when you, you're thinking about um, planning a holiday and then you've, you've booked that trip and you can't wait to go and it's just, it's exquisite agony. Like you want to be there, but you actually really enjoy the anticipation period. And um, I know there's authors and philosophers who have spoken and written about this at great length that our... Um, the most enjoyment of a trip can sometimes be derived from the planning and the anticipation in preparation for it because then once you get there, the airport's crowded and it's crap and you get on the plane and you're sitting next to somebody who like smells and takes their shoes off and then starts clipping their toenails in front of you. And so your actual experience of the trip um, isn't as good as the anticipation and waiting for it <laughs> when you're looking at the glossy magazines and the crystal blue water and then you get there and it's a monster for two weeks. So. <laughs> I, I, I am going to do a, a shameless plug on your behalf. Uh, I do think everyone should should go and buy this book, not only because of the good stuff in it, but also because of the way it's laid out. Because I really liked what you did at the end of each chapter was give people some uh, ideas in terms of how to speak each of the each of the strategies. And one of the ones I wanted to explore and follows on nicely from what we we're just speaking about was. This idea number six, which is uh, how to manage expectations. Yeah. So, and I guess what we haven't spoken about in, in the workplace, anticipation is an incredibly important strategy for, um, yeah, there's always initiatives being run. There's always programs being run. There's training. Um, 
sometimes it just gets thrown on us and, and we have to go, but we can use that period of anticipation um, that lead into whatever experience we are, we're giving people to manage the expectations. So if we've got a, a conference coming up um, and we want it to be different from all the previous conferences that we've held because there's either been you know, not great feedback or, or mediocre feedback, um, that you can use that period, of, say, three or four weeks before it to start building the anticipation around it. Um, you can also use that period to manage expectations. So if you need to um, clearly say this is what it's going to be like um, so we can cognitively frame people to be in the right mindset um, for when they arrive at the event or if it's training to have been managing their expectations about we need you to have done these things or to be thinking like this or to have um, explored these areas or had these conversations before you get into the room. So anticipation as a, um, you're working on your comm strategies, um, to think about that as, as that period of anticipation and what you can do to manage expectations because the last thing you want to do is, um, is have a mismatch in, in expectations unless they're going to be exceeded. You also talk about this idea of surprise, the unanticipated delight of the unexpected. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit about surprise. Yeah, surprise is um, just one of those lovely ways to jolt people out of the everyday and draw focus and and bring attention to what you want to be speaking about. Um, Yeah. Surprise jolts us back to attention. It breaks our expectations. Um, It's, one, I think one of the sections in the book is something about mashing, mashing a pause button in your brain. It, it just stops and you can then focus and then you can move on. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a lovely little strategy to, for leaders to use um, in the positive. We just don't particularly want to use it for, for any of the negatives. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise, you're fired. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't really work there, does it? (laughs) No, definitely not. Like one of the things that we talked about in the book is um, some of the work we were doing with ProBuild and in in the safety realm and trying to um, bring attention to objects falling from height. And so one of the uh, surprise activities was to drop a watermelon, um, no, sorry, drop an object onto a watermelon from one story height. Um, and you know, imagine all the guys and gals standing around and just watching watermelons explode. And it's a different thing to happen in the day. It's a surprise. Oh, this is what we're doing today. And the conversations that happen afterwards about objects falling from height is where the real gold is. But it's that moment of this is something different that gets people engaged enough to have those conversations. Yeah, and I, and I think that's just really important to, because specifically when we're talking about safety, uh, mm. people are used to the, 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 the dry, here's the legislation, here's what you're supposed to do, and the fact you've been able to come up with a way to surprise and delight and, and still get the message home and highlight the importance. It, it sounds like uh, something a few organisations could, could think about with watermelons. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. It's actually almost the name of a program, the watermelon program for... <laughs> there you go. There's one for free. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So you also talk about this idea of visual, the sensory superiority of visual. And this one mm-hmm. particularly resonated with me because I, I know the way that I work personally and, and if I can't draw it and turn it into something, it doesn't really make sense to me. So I'm really keen on, on hearing your thoughts about the importance of this. Out of the whole book, I'd say it's the one that we get the most feedback on, um, which I guess for us it's it's been who we are pretty much through our entire careers as you know, artists and video designers. And um, so visual has just always been there and, and so we're learning and understanding more and more that it isn't a natural thing that people turn to. Um, I'm the same as you in that in, unless I can sketch it out, it, it's it's not there. <laughs> um, there's so many benefits to being more visual. It, it aids our recall and comprehension. It simplifies complexity. Um, it, it increases our, or attracts and directs our attention. I, if I can't stop thinking of, <laughs> of all of the reasons why visual is so good, it literally gets people on the same page. Um, 
you know, since the beginning of time, it's, it's how humans have managed to convey stories. Um, it's all of the, all of the things, infographics, um, videos, um, posters. I'm thinking about something that I was talking to a client about this morning, um, was you know how in in some like manufacturing plants or distribution centers you've got like the the big uh like lunch rooms and you go in and then there's the tables and so on the tables you can have like the table tent and often it's just full of like small writing and so one of the things we're talking about doing is just these um really visual icons of somebody trying to lick their elbow with a did you know you can you can't lick your elbow um so fast forward and imagine these all then and then a whole bunch of people like sitting around tables trying to lick their elbows and you know really simple visual message but the conversation um that follows on from this is around ergonomics and how we don't move enough at work and um etc etc well what i'm wondering now is if everyone who's listening to this has just tried to do what i tried to do which was lick my elbow and uh i bet you did not, not actually come anywhere close <laughs> it's impossible. <laughs> oh, unless you're probably double jointed. There'll be someone out there that's going to write in afterwards and go, I did it, and I want to see the proof. Yeah, well, please do. If you <laughs> are able to lick your elbow, please do take a photo, send it through, leave a, a review on iTunes as well, saying that you're able to lick your elbow as a result of this conversation. <laughs> Brilliant. I think, and you know, further with visual, the whole visual conversation, one of the easiest places that people can start is how they're visualising their data and their reports. So there's inevitably a quarterly report or an annual report. How are we tracking um, in safety? There's, you know, all of our metrics that need reporting on. But how do you take that and turn it into something that goes beyond an LTIR or an RIR, which is a, you know, 3.1 or a 4.2, which makes zero sense to Bob who's driving a truck whereas you can use visual to then turn that into something that is really relatable and that goes you know even if it's a a visual of 10 people and two people are colored differently it's um this is this is how many people are likely to be hurt in your team this year because of these reasons um so you can just very easily take complex data and turn it into something that anyone can relate to in in the context of their world and what their work day looks like yeah i i find that uh specifically with trying to impart any sort of learning and concepts if you've got a, a visual model to support it that mm -hmm. that's what people remember the most yeah definitely so you also speak about the importance of narratives you know and mm. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with the theme of using the tagline you've got as well, the titillations of a well-told tale. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> got to love alliteration. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so share a little bit about the importance of narratives if you can. Yeah, well, I, I think this one is one that lots of people are familiar with. Storytelling's been on the, on the rise for quite a while now um, and it's yeah, the fundamental human skill of being able to uh, share news um it's how we you know, built our societies and and so many of our constructs in society how we operate um whether it's across religion politics um oh, everything's built on a narrative um in organizations it's yeah they're, they're incredibly powerful ways to to get a message across and i think when you think about some of the most impactful moments um, in your working lives, it it's often comes back to when a leader shared a great story, potentially a personal story. Um, I know whenever I share a story at a conference that doesn't matter how much um, great data or cutting-edge research that you drop into a keynote, it's usually somebody coming up to me and saying, hey, when you spoke about that um, playstation game that you played and and what you learned from from that that really resonated with me and i'm like really out of an hour and a half that's what you remember <laughs> you're kidding me um and it's because stories the way humans interpret stories and how we how we you know learn and and remember stories happens in a different part of our brain um when we hear a great story it sparks 
the same parts in our brain. So we, we see it, we, we visualize it. It feels like it actually happened to us. And that's why stories are so powerful compared to just dropping data or, or info or bullet points on people um, because our brains interpret them differently. It interprets it as data, not emotionally. You do make an interesting point too, uh, just a, a bit into that chapter, which is that um, if narratives are proven to be more influential than logic, why is corporate messaging still short on story and fact with fact? What's your experience there? Because I, I find that corporates still struggle with the idea of story, common language, all of those things. Yeah, I, I think to be honest, and it's not for everyone, but it's harder. It's harder to sit down and, and come up with something that you feel like sharing with someone that takes a lot of vulnerability to share something personal and personal stories always make for the best stories because they're authentic and they're actually coming from a place that um, of experience and um, you, know, you, you can feel when there's a great authentic story being told. So it, it does take a little bit more commitment and, um, and time to do, but I think the benefits of it far outweigh the, uh, yeah, that slight bit of discomfort beforehand. You encourage people to get emotional, to share their emotions. Mm-hmm. Why should they do that? <laughs> I think for a long time we've been told to leave our emotions at the door. We, we shouldn't um, be emotional at work. You know, what people are beginning to realise now and, and some of the smartest psychologists around the world are, are saying time and time again is that um, there's no benefit to leaving the emotions at home and people are wonderful, fleshy bags of emotions. Um, so instead of just ignoring that they exist, why don't we understand them and then um, harness them to everyone's advantage? Um, when people are, you know, you'd see this across the work you do in safety, when people are emotionally invested, they're engaged when they're emotionally invested, they take far more care. Um, when you're emotionally invested, you look out for each other. You look out for yourself. You look out for anyone around you. Um, so coming at different communications from an emotional perspective um, can definitely influence behaviour. Uh, advertising and marketing have been exploiting this side of uh, human behavior for many years who hasn't cried at a hallmark ad before. And you know, that's, <laughs> uh, was that just me? Um, you know, <laughs> maybe. Um, yeah. I, I think it's, it's a fairly obvious one when we start to think about, Oh, okay. Yeah. There's lots of safety messaging out there at the moment that is embracing the emotional side of safety. Uh, as long as we've got our great processes great processes set up and we've got great systems installed, um, then bringing in the emotional layer to get our people's engaged hearts and minds, then, um, yeah, that's the next step. Yeah, and I think you raised an interesting point there because it is the, the hearts and minds which are going to impact the behaviours. and kind of mm -hmm. It's the behaviours which quite often, you know, can be traced back to someone choosing not to follow a process or procedure, getting themselves or someone else into a little bit of trouble. Have you found that with the rise in uptake of some of the emotional intelligence concepts that people are starting to feel a bit more comfortable with sharing their emotions or, 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 or talking about them with, with particular people? I'm still seeing uh, quite a big reluctance, to be honest. Um, we work with a lot of global companies, so... Uh, I think Australia is actually a bit more progressive in this area than, say, Europe and the States um, from our experience. And, yeah, I, I maybe, I don't know, maybe Australians wear their hearts on their sleeves a little bit more. But, um, yeah, it's, it's quite varied um, and often comes down to the, the leaders in the company and, and the example that they're setting. Humour seems to be uh, an important one here, according to, to you as well. Um, that's often at odds with, with the corporate view of things. So why, why is humour <laughs> being funny? The serious business of being funny. Um, yeah, it's, 
this one in this chapter is the one that most people are going, hang on a minute. I, I don't know about that. Uh, it's, it's just too risky, isn't it? Um, but yeah, there's many reasons why humor, um, we shouldn't, we can use it. We've just got to be really appropriate about how we use it and when we use it. Um, why do we, why do we suggest, you know, bringing humor in and, there's a number of reasons. It relieves stress and boredom. It diffuses tension, negativity, uh, inspires creativity, builds relationships, fosters collaboration, improves motivation, um, aids learning, hones our analytical precision and raises productivity. Um, so I've just had to like read a section of the book to remember all of those things. That's how much humor can impact us physiologically and emotionally. Um, I think at, at work, it, it is a tricky one because we have to be really appropriate when we're using humour. Um, and how do you be appropriate? Well, it depends on the context. It depends on the timing. It depends on the content. Um, we've used humour in safety messaging quite a lot, um, which has most people going, what? No, safety is serious business. Um, and of course, you never make light of an incident and you never make fun of an incident and there's never humor around an incident. But within training, it can be a great way to get people talking about something which is going to then embed and remember for when we're out in the field. Um, what we've found is that there's different types of humour that can be used. So slapstick as a, as a type of humour is something that's quite universally accepted um, and it crosses cultures as well because that's the other consideration is that what's funny in Australia isn't necessarily funny in Shenzhen, China. Um, and so some work that we did with Mattel, we went down um, the path of using slapstick humour, which worked really well in, in Chinese environment. Um, yeah. Do you have a, a, a go-to for humour, like, you know, send people to look at funny cat videos on YouTube, something that's not, uh, that, that sort of is... Uh, look, cat videos is what I get up to in my spare time. It's not necessarily <laughs> what I'll send clients to look at. Uh, no, it really, it has to be very custom and specific for that that audience. So um, understanding the audience really well um, is key to getting humor right um i'm thinking with a construction company we're working with at the moment when the um workforce is predominantly 18 to 28 year old males um what they find funny is um the memes and and laughing at others misfortunes so <laughs> which is lovely um but when you understand those um those you know what what is fundamental to that group and, and you really break down the demographics and then you look at their likes and their dislikes and preferences for things, then you can make a really informed decision about, oh, this is how we could use it and it's probably going to hit the mark. And then you can do a few little focus groups and tests just to, just to make sure. Interestingly enough, you talk about words being an important part of how to speak human. What? Words being a part of how we speak? That is revolutionary. Look at us go. <laughs> um, yeah, words, we wanted to get into a little bit of the technical part of language. And we do have a whole chapter on language, but speaking about language um, more culturally. Uh, whereas words, we wanted to focus in on how much our words actually have an impact in the moment. Um, and, and so this is the chapter where we get into talking about active versus passive language or we talk about loaded language or um, abstract versus concrete language. There's a lot of miscommunication happens when we're getting these wrong. Um, so, you know, for example, within, uh, say, active versus passive language, this can simply be how we, how we structure our sentences. Are we saying up front what it is that we want to do or are we being passive around it and and coming at it from a waffle 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 here's what I need um, and so simply retraining how we structure what what it is that we want can cut through a lot of confusion straight away um, and get to the point uh, what's interesting is that men and women actually are and this is gross generalization because there's always the exceptions 
myself being one of them, is that men are actually often more active in their language and women more passive in their language, um, which is something that you know, a lot of training to, to stop doing that. Um, one can come across as being more direct and um, not aggressive, but, it, you know, if you've got a frown on your face when you're using active language, it can be like, oh, oh my gosh, I need to do it. And apparently, according to my team at work, I use active language um, quite a lot. So I don't know if that's a shot across the bow. Um, maybe smile more. <laughs> um, but it does mean that everybody always knows what it is that I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> In the words chapter, you talk about a devious technique, which you just referenced before called loaded language. I was keen to explore that a little bit more. Yeah, well, I think you just need to switch on the news and, and check out the politicians to see a case study in loaded language. It's, um, it's something that they use very well. Um, yeah, you just have to think of, of any of them around the place at the moment. Make America great again. Stop the boats. Um, yeah, you know, anytime you see those really clear, like, words that make you feel something or like whether it's especially fear is what they're going with, um, then it's, it's loaded language and it's easy to repeat and it's easy to, um, easy to understand and it, and it really takes hold. So you can use it for good though, um, rather than for evil and, um, you know, use, use language that does make people feel something rather than the, uh, fear factor. <laughs> Apparently, there's the, an undeniable sweetness of a well-chosen name because you talk about names being mm. important in all of this. Yeah, naming is, a, is interesting and it's something that, um, you know, when you talk about naming, you have to kind of talk about branding as well at the same time. So namings can help us categorise things more effectively. Um, names can also um, start that whole curiosity, anticipation, um, expectation of phase of learning. So when we, uh, for example, name a conference and the example we use in the book is a particular client uh, was having a, a conference that they were calling a systems meeting. And one of the the things they wanted to do was really just like shake things up this year and you know, people are flying in all over the world from different parts of the company coming together for the first time in two years and they were calling it a systems meeting. And so we're like, well, maybe if we want to set a different, you know, expectation to this and maybe if we want to build anticipation, we want to call it something that, um, you know, has a bit of loaded language in there. So it became like the... Um, big, bold, better together conference or something like that. It was a few years ago now. And, um, you know, it, that sets up from the start. This is, this is going to be something different. Um, it brings in a bit of loaded language. Uh, it's not called a systems meeting, which definitely has a whole lot of connotations of people sitting around looking at way too many PowerPoint slides being bought out of their brains, wondering if the cupcakes are being put out yet for morning tea. Yeah, so change the name, change the perspective. Just digging a little deeper in that, in, in the end of that chapter on names, idea number 19, you actually encourage people to name thoughtfully and categorise carefully. Have you mm -hmm. anything else you can share around that? Yeah, this um, harks into quite a zeitgeist of the moment in how um, organisations are rebranding whole departments. So we've seen HR kind of now moving into being called people and culture and now it's starting to be called employee experience. Um, you know, not everyone, but that's, that's a bit of a trend that's happening. How do we refer to our people? Are we calling them staff or are we calling them resources? Um, resources gives us the connotation that uh, they can be used up. We have, you know, resources like a bag of sugar once you've finished it then you go and buy another bag of sugar um, feels very transactional as opposed to what if we're calling our people um, our people or our team um, and that sort of naming of of the different things that make up our organization actually sinks into our psyche and and can um, from that stage from this very start start building better relationships 
You talk about this idea as well that uh, language has a power to shift perception. So I'm curious mm -hmm. to explore that a little as well. Yeah, there's language is a big chapter and and one that we really struggled about and realised it probably should have been an entire book on its own because there's so much more. Um, I guess the central theme around this chapter was this notion of the circularity of language, thought and culture and how the language that we embed in our organisations, um, which is reflected across all of those different all those different language elements that appear whether we are aware of them or not like what we're calling our values and the conversations we have around our values what are those rituals or those cultural norms that we we keep on coming back to language is what we use to have a commonality with everybody inside our workplaces so unless we're um active in shaping that shared language it's going to happen regardless without us because this is what human teams are, are built on. This is what um, people coming together for common purposes use as a means of understanding each other, language. Uh, so for organisations to be really cognizant of it and to be aware of and constantly shaping and influencing what the language is, is really important because that feeds into what our thoughts are, what our beliefs are, what our experience is. And then of course that influences behavior, which influences our culture. So there's um, starting with language, uh, getting the language right, which influences our thought, which influences our behavior, which influences our culture. Um, pretty powerful stuff to kind of get a hook in what's what's an easy place to start in that um is the is the, um, our values it's something that's very very common for for most people to be across and to understand and um yeah when you think about the language that we often use for our values it's integrity respect excellence teamwork all quite familiar ones, quite common ones, but are there better ones? Are there better ones that are representative of the culture that we're trying to breed? You also talk about the, the importance of modes and the perks of matching the mode to the message. How can people make sure that they're, they're thinking about that, that they're, they're matching the mode to the message? Yeah, well, that's, this is getting into some technical um, communication strategy work now and that's um, once you understand uh, what you're trying to say and who you're trying to say it to, then you've got to fill in the gaps in the, in the middle. So um, who, starting with the audience, um, where are they likely to receive information from? Where are they likely to learn? What's the right um, channel to reach them and then once you know what the channel is then you're able to determine what's the right mode to get us there what's the right um, medium so should we be using uh, written text or should we be using video or should we be using more visual language uh, broadly speaking what we know about uh, demographics is that um, leaders and uh, probably sort of that Gen X, boomer age group prefer um, text still. They like to have a report. They like to see that the, the depth is there um, compared to, say, a frontline workforce who um, would much prefer to receive information as a video. Um, so understanding what those options are and then how we can hit those different groups is uh, definitely a shortcut to getting attention, influencing and engaging. And so uh, I like the, the, my, my final sort of question for you where you encourage the, the readers to beware the excuses for mediocrity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is speaking to um, all of the reasons that uh, leaders get faced with when they um, go, I'm going to try something different, I'm going to use one of these strategies and put it out there and then they come across these these different excuses that get thrown back at them when you know you're having that legal round table discussion and somebody says no oh, I just don't know if legal would approve or uh, we're going to have the brand guidelines thrown at us so this will never get through internal comms um, you know or the fear of, of 
doing something differently and, and it not working out. So our, the beware, the excuse, excuses for mediocrity is just going through these one by one and busting them and arming leaders and managers with the right tools and conversations to take back and, and say this is the reasons why we should do it in spite of these different things. So any, any, any last advice for, for the listeners on how they can speak human? Three things from the book I would say if you're going to take anything away is, one, get more visual. Um, it's something that we can do straight away is instead of typing it out, um, why not find a picture that does it or, or draw a picture? Everyone's got uh, hidden illustration skills that they're not quite sure they had. Um, they've just been lost through years of higher education. Um, get it back out and get more visual. Um, the second thing I would say is uh, lean into the emotional side of work, whether that's um, using storytelling to drive the emotions, using a bit more loaded language. Um, emotions are a great way of connecting with other humans, funnily enough, and can really uh, start to lead us towards the outcomes that we're looking for. And uh, language, be really cognizant of language and the words that we're using. Um, are we calling people resources? Are we calling them staff? Um, are there other words there? Is there better language that we should be using to shape the culture that we're looking for? Well, uh, I think that's a, a great way to, to finish the, the show up, Jen. I want to say a big thank you for uh, being a part of it. And I want to throw in another shameless plug on your behalf I, I i'm going to encourage everyone to to go out and buy it you actually can't miss it just in the in the visual because it's sort of a almost a a, a fluoro yellow cover and it will certainly stand out so i think that any bookstore people should be able to, to see it pretty quickly so <laughs> thank you so much jen for being on the, the synergy leadership podcast thanks for having me well, that wraps up episode 52 of the Synergy and Leadership Podcast, and I'm going to make a recommendation. I'm going to recommend that you all go out and buy a copy of Jen Jackson's book because I think it really will add some value to, to you as a leader. So if there are any other authors you think would be a great fit for our podcast, please do let me know and do head over to the Synergy Group website where you can engage with us and talk about the podcast and share with us what you think. In next week's show, I speak with Emma Bannister, who is a CEO and founder of Presentation Studio, and they are essentially the premier presentation studio for all of Asia Pacific. So it's another great interview. Stay tuned for that one next week. Until then, happy listening.